0: Now, uh, we've been in this little series on love, agape, the, the giving love of God, and I've been doing a lot of reading, and I came across something that I heard years ago, and you've probably heard this before. If you've heard it before, you know that you've heard it before, because if you've ever heard this, it just rang true, and you may not remember every word, but if you've heard this before, you just go, yeah, that's right. It's almost like one of those a priori truths that you just know is true. You don't even have to defend it's true. You just know it's true. It just sounds so true. Here it is. This is from Kent M. Keith. He says, People are illogical, unreasonable, and self-centered. Love them anyway. If you do good, people will accuse you of selfish, ulterior motives. Do good anyway. If you're successful, you will win false friends and true enemies. Succeed anyway. The good you do today will be forgotten tomorrow. Do good anyway. Honesty and frankness make you vulnerable. Be honest and frank anyway. The biggest men and women with the biggest ideas can be shot down by the smallest men and women with the smallest minds. Think big anyway. People favor underdogs but only follow top dogs. Fight for a few underdogs anyway. What you spend years building may be destroyed overnight. Build anyway. People really need help and may attack you. If you do help them, help people anyway. Give the world the best you have and you'll get kicked in the teeth. Give the world the best you have anyway. Isn't that great? Love them anyway. Help them anyway. That just That's so wonderful. That's true. But that's easier said than done. You know why that's easier said than done? Because you and I, we need to be loved anyway. We're the ones that need to be helped anyway. It's not like, oh, we're over here and then there's those people. No, we have our own difficulties and struggles. In moments of clarity, most of us, if we have any humility about us whatsoever, we recognize I can be the illogical, unreasonable, self-centered one. I need to be loved anyway. I need to be helped anyway. And so the bottom line is, if anyone is ever going to love the world the way the world needs to be loved, it needs to be someone not of this world. Only someone not of this world or only someone born from above, born from another world, could possibly love this world the way this world needs to be loved. Now here's the good news. The good news is, there is a God who's like this. There's a God who is agape, who is the love that gives and gives and gives simply because it's in His nature to simply give. And this God, who is agape, who is pure love, who created this world and sees that this world is spinning out of control, has not withheld himself from this world. And you expect that to happen because if a God were pure love, you would think he would give the world exactly what the world needs. And so he would, in fact, give nothing less than himself. Sometimes people say, I believe that there's a God of love. Well, then you must believe in the incarnation because if you believe that that God who is love is actually real, you know he's not going to withhold himself from this world. And what history tells us, what the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ tells us is all of this is not just theory. This actually happened, that God who is love came to this world to restore this world to its original state. And the good news is because this God who is a giving love has not withheld himself from this world and has done everything for you and for me, we can enter into a relationship with this God who is love and be born from above. And when you're born from above, when you're born of another world, you have an opportunity to grow up into this birth. And when that process is completed, when you've grown up into who God has made you to be through your rebirth, here's what happens. You become like Him. And you love people anyway, and you do good anyway, and you help people anyway. The hope of the whole world comes down to the reality that there is a God who is love, and He came, and He has involved Himself in your life and in my life personally, so that we are redemptive agents, so that one day this world that has fallen will be completely and utterly restored and remade. That's the good news. And it all is rooted in the nature and the character of God that we've been looking at here in First Corinthians chapter 13. We've been talking about love, and last week we came to this wonderful verse that tells us that at least one aspect of love is kindness. Love is kind. And last week as we began to look at kindness, we saw that this kindness, this crestates of Christ, is not just niceness, there is a fierceness and a boldness to kindness that is absent from niceness. It's not just giving people what it is that they need and being a practical benefit, it's being bold. Niceness is kind of bland and distant and uh, sort of, uh, you know, a, a vanilla or uninvolved. But kindness is anything but distant because kindness involves the giving of oneself the way that agape love has given himself to you and to me without any reservation. And we looked at all of that last week through the lens of one of the most wonderful stories of kindness in the Old Testament. The story of David and Mephibosheth recorded in Second Samuel chapter 9. We're going to go back to that story again and continue to look at kindness through that lens as we aspire to become kinder and therefore more loving and more godlike people. So with that, let's go ahead and stand out of respect for God who's speaking to us through his word. This is 2 Samuel chapter 9 verses 1 through 13. David asked, is there anyone still left of the house of Saul to whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant of Saul's household named Ziba. They called him to appear before David, and the king said to him, Are you Ziba, your servant? He replied, the king asked. Is there no one still left of the house of Saul to whom I can show God's kindness? Ziba answered the king, There is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in both feet. And as we established last week, the son of Jonathan who is crippled in both feet is actually an adversary of David. He's an enemy of David's because he had plenty of reason to hold a grudge against David personally, and he's also this... Uh, rallying point for the enemies of David if anyone ever wanted to rise up against this king who came from Judah it'd be the people of Benjamin uh, rallying around Mephibosheth so he's an enemy but years before actually about a thousand years before the son of David ever said love your enemies here's the king David and he is actually loving an enemy verse 4 where is he the king asked Ziba answered He is at the house of Makir, son of Amiel, in Lodabar. So King David had him brought from Lodabar from the house of Makir, son of Amiel. When Mephibosheth, son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David, he bowed down to pay him honor. David said, Mephibosheth, your servant, he replied. Don't be afraid, David said to him, for I will surely show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. I will restore to you all the land that belonged to your father, Saul, and you will always eat at my table. Mephibosheth bowed down and said, What is your servant that you should notice a dead dog like me? Then the king summoned Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, I have given your master's grandson everything that belonged to Saul and his family. You and your sons and your servants are to farm the land for him and bring in the crops so that your master's grandson may be provided for. And Mephibosheth, grandson of your master, will always eat at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Then Ziba said to the king, Your servant will do whatever my lord the king commands his servants to do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. And this is amazing here because here an enemy of David is sitting at David's table like a member of the family. It's amazing. Mephibosheth had a young son named Micah, and all the members of Ziba's household were servants of Mephibosheth. And Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem because he always ate at the king's table, and he was crippled in both feet. God bless your word you may be seated Now this morning we're going to focus on one question and then next week we're going to move on to some more aspects of love But but what I want to answer this morning is this question How do we and i'm going to just put this in first person plural because or singular really because I want I want this to apply to me and I want this to apply to you. How do I? Best reveal the next level kindness of god Because that's the whole agenda in showing kindness It's to reveal His kindness so that people have an opportunity to respond to God. That's the highest motive. The highest motive... I'm going to read it like I've put it on the screen. The highest motive for showing next-level kindness is the desire to reveal the character of God. Look at David in verse 3. The king asked, Is there no one still left of the house of Saul to whom I can show God's kindness? It's not just that David wanted to display his kindness... David is after displaying the kindness of God so that people like Mephibosheth, but not only Mephibosheth, can respond to God's kindness. How do we display that kindness? This is in keeping with our identity as a family of priests revealing Christ. So Somebody asked me the other day, what do you mean by that? And I, I was thinking about this series, talking about love. So here, here it is. As a priest, you have an opportunity to stand between two worlds, You're a go-between. You're You're an intercessor. You're able to bring love to people and bring people to love. That's what a priest does. And so what we want to do is reveal appropriately God's kindness so that they have an opportunity to step into the kindness of God because if they are not having an experience with you as a kind emissary on God's behalf, how in the world are they going to know His kindness? How are they going to respond to His kindness? We want His kindness to show forth. That's what we do as priests. We represent appropriately our God on high so that people can step into a relationship with this God. I know I'm not the high priest. That would be Jesus Christ. But in Christ, that's your job and mine, to accurately represent God to the world, that the world would respond appropriately to the God who is real and not the God that has been distorted and twisted and remade in people's fallen images. So again, here's the question. How do I best reveal the next level kindness of God? And the first thing is this. Number one, I must recognize the general kindness I have received from God. That's what David did. He realized that God had been kind to him in a whole host of ways. You go back one chapter, in chapter 8, we see that David has won these incredible victories. God has been been blessing him and so we read in verse 13 that David made a name for himself when he returned from killing 18,000 Aramaeans in the Valley of Salt. Now this is a huge victory over his enemies. This is a massive battle, massive victory. And so two verses later, here's what we read in verse 15. David reigned over all Israel and David administered justice and righteousness for all his people. So he is finally he's set. Things are solid. The very next thing that we read about is David looking for someone to bless. The very next thing we come to is verse 1 of chapter 9. Is there still anyone left of the house of Saul to whom I may show kindness for Jonathan's sake? When David came into his great fortune, when he came into the success, when he came into the stability, when he recognized that God is the one who blessed him and gave him military advantage and tactical advantage and warfare ability and had blessed him with some stability in the land, David has an opportunity to do one of two things. He can either withdraw and enjoy the fruits of his labors, or he can continue to be engaged, but be engaged in a whole other way. A lot of times, here's what happens people recognize that they're in a blessed position, and then they forget that God is the one who's blessed them so as to be a blessing to other people. And here's what happens as a result we just sit on what it is that we've been given. We think about how can I protect my territory? How can I keep my established position Or we think along these lines of now that I've won all these hard-fought battles, I'm going to enjoy the fruit of my labor for maybe a few weeks or a few months or for the rest of my life. David has that opportunity, but he recognizes in keeping with the great traditions of the Jewish people that he's been blessed to be a blessing to other people. So he counts his blessings, and as he's counting his blessings, he realizes everything I have, everything that I am, everything that I possess has come to me by the kindness of God. And so if I want to show next-level kindness to other people, it really does help for me to count my blessings. And I know that I've been blessed in all kinds of ways. We can always focus on the one or two things that we don't have or the things that didn't work out in accordance with our plans, but that kind of tends to be maybe 5%. But I thank God for my family, I thank God for my wife, I thank God for my kids, I thank God for this church, I thank God that I'm American. I mean, you can keep going on and on and on down the list. And if you count your blessings, you'll have to you'll have to choose to do one of two things. You can just sit back and take credit for what it is that God has given to you, or you can realize that the blessings that God has given to you comes with a necessary obligation. If He's been kind to you, if you're going to respond to God in an appropriate way, you've got to be kind to other people. You have to be. Jean and I were talking the other, the other night, just actually it was just last night, she would say, well, if somebody asks you, why is it that, that we want to do this fostering thing? Because we're meeting with Allison Zander in a couple of days, kind of as a pre-meeting before we do our training for foster care and all the rest. And, and you know, that's a good question, but it was, it's was, it was not like, oh, you know, we ha- I had a vision, and I just know that this was it because there was this circumstance and this circumstance. It's, it's pretty simple. We are pretty decent parents, one of our two kids turned out pretty well. <laughs> and uh, we're still young. I feel young. And uh, and we've got a house. And we've got three bedrooms. And they're going to be unoccupied most of the time. And uh, while we were essentially homeless, Christ left his home in glory so that we would have a home. And we know that there are kids in need and we have a place and we've got room in our lives and there are certain restrictions we know. We can't take somebody too young because she works and I work and that's not... But there's some people out there, there are some kids out there that we can meet their needs and so I kind of feel like I would need a vision from God as to not be involved in some kid's life at this point in our life. We're just at that age where we're not wanting to adopt... We just want to foster. It just makes sense. I don't think somebody needs to have a waking vision or a strong call to be kind. I actually think to the contrary. If if it's obviously not something that you should do, you probably should have a waking vision as to not to do it because if you can provide and there are people who have needs, you just match up your provision with people's needs. I'm not saying everybody should be a foster parent, but everybody ought to be in a position where they're asking the appropriate question, to whom can I show kindness? Maybe it's a foreign exchange student. Maybe it's a person next door. Maybe it's somebody that you know just needs some visitation in a nursing home. I don't know. There's all kinds of needs But everybody should rightfully ask, is there someone in particular to whom I can show kindness? And if there's not someone in particular to whom you're showing kindness, you need to go find that someone. If you recognize you've been blessed. So that's one thing. If I'm going to show next level kindness to someone else, it really helps if I count my blessings and recognize God has been kind to me. I used to think about this in a general way all the time when I was growing up. I grew up in South Texas, just seven miles north of the border. And I have to tell you, it wasn't very often that a week would go by that I wasn't just thanking God that I was seven miles north of the river as opposed to seven miles south. God is good to us in ways that we oftentimes just simply take for granted. Count your blessings. There's a second thing I think that is really important for us in order to show the next level kindness of God. And that is, you, you, you've got to look for what you're not seeing. I need to look for what I'm not seeing. Here, here's what I mean by this. Here, here's what happens with David. Verse 3, the king asks, Is there no one still left of the house of Saul to whom I can show God's kindness? Now David didn't know. He didn't know if there was anyone left. Apparently, he doesn't know about Mephibosheth or he doesn't know about Mephibosheth having two crippled feet. There's no shame in not knowing. At least he admits, I know that I don't know, but I want to find out. What am I not seeing here? Now, we read through the passage and we say, well, Mephibosheth obviously had a problem because, you know, when you walk like this, obviously you've got some messed up feet and we can help you. But David hasn't even seen that yet. And sometimes we don't show kindness because we're not seeing who is it that needs the kindness. And so I don't know who needs the kindness. And then you start pressing a little further and you think, well, actually, do you know anyone actually who does not need kindness? I, I was reading Dietrich Bonhoeffer's Letters from prison. So good. And uh, I-, I like to read in Starbucks because I like people to be around just gives me some energy, and I can focus better. I focus better if there's people around. I can actively ignore, and so I'm in a, I'm in a Starbucks and I'm reading, and I'm starting to get teared up because it's it's so moving. And he said something along these lines that I thought was kind of helpful. He said we need to stop we need to stop looking at people in terms of what they do or don't do or what they've done or And we need to start looking at people in light of what they're suffering. David looks across the political aisle, so to speak. He looks into the camp that is unlike his. And he asks, is there anyone there to whom I can show kindness? What is it that I'm not seeing? I I love this quote from Seneca. Whenever there's a human being, there is an opportunity for kindness. If you come across someone that you think does not need kindness from you, you are not looking closely enough. Have you noticed that there's sort of an increase in unkindness in our country? Am I the only one that's noticed that? I I got something sent to me the other day. It's like, tweet unto others as you would have them tweet unto you. I thought that was so good. Um... Yeah, things are kind of a little nasty. Why is it that as our as our nation seems to be, be it seems to be becoming more and more divided of male and female, this party and that party, and the oldcomers and the newcomers, and this race and that race, and this economic status and that economic status as we seem to be more and more even intentionally divided along all these other lines, it seems like unkindness is on the increase. You know why that is? I've got a theory. I think this is right. We have a tendency to think that if you're not in my particular group, however you define your particular group, you don't understand suffering. You don't suffer like I do. Listen, i got a news flash for you. I don't care what group you're in in particular. Everybody suffers something. If you're looking at somebody and you're seeing that they're not suffering, you're not looking closely enough. You can't judge a book by its cover. You don't know what's going on in this person's life. You don't know what's going on in their history. You don't know. You don't know me, and I'm not trying to be unkind or anything, but... You know, sometimes people are a little bit surprised to learn that I actually understand what it's like to be on the receiving end of racism. I grew up in South Texas as a minority. My son experienced that for a while when we were in Port Isabel. He was in the public school. He was the only white kid in his whole class. And he got bullied. And he was trying to figure out what's going on here. Is it because I have blue eyes? That's what he said. Is it because I have blue eyes? And that wasn't code for white skin. He's just like, what's going on? I'm trying to figure this out. You say, oh, well, you know, you're you're a white man. You don't understand that. Really? You don't know me. Oh, this person is this and this. They couldn't possibly have any problems. What, you think just because somebody has money or a good house that they don't have difficulties or emotional stress? Really? If you're thinking somebody isn't suffering, you're not looking closely enough. I was reading this, this book that was recommended to me by... Uh, my Ruth Ann and it's this this book written by Gregory Williams. Can we put a picture up there? This is this is him. That's Greg Williams. He writes this little autobiography, Shattered by the Darkness, and it looks like he's a you know great kid. I mean, look at this, you know? All American, playing baseball, hugging his dad, and and it's a terrible book because it's about how he was sexually abused by this dad for over a dozen years. As far back as he can remember, his earliest memories at the age of four were were of him being sexually abused by his dad. It could have gone further. He just doesn't have any memories of it. lasted until he was 17 on an almost daily basis. Which, by the way, if if you're thinking about reading the book, don't read the book if you have any personal history in this matter because it's pretty graphic. It'll get you. Terrible book. Glad I read it come to the end and he talks about in the, in the last appendix about how he could not possibly have, have survived if it weren't for Jesus Christ and his relationship with God and, and the Bible. I'm not going to read you any of the details of his story but I, I do want to read something that he wrote that I thought was just such a powerful reminder of how we just don't see sometimes. How we don't see because darkness is so dark and darkness hides in darkness and you don't know. He wrote, Darkness has many faces, and it wears many types of clothes business suits, jeans, uniforms, or even medical scrubs. Darkness is never invited. No one ever sits down and deliberately sends a personal invitation to welcome it. Darkness always comes as an unwanted visitor and stays longer than it ever should. Darkness enters in many different ways. Sometimes it arrives quickly and leaves in seconds. Other times it lingers for a few hours or even a few days. When the night approached the heart of a small child, me, it came in with a vengeance. The unwanted, uninvited visitor brought luggage that would remain not just for an evening or two, but for over a dozen years. The script was written by a depraved mind full of darkness. The entrance was no accident. It was crafted by a master manipulator and puppeteer. This drama wasn't written for the masses but for one single small child. Interstage left. Darkness. We don't know what we don't know. We can't see what we don't see. But even before we come to know what it is that we don't currently know, we can know this much. We can know that we don't know. And we can also know that whatever we're dealing with in this other person, there's some suffering there. Even before we see what we don't currently see, we can see here's someone who needs kindness. So if I'm going to show the next level kindness of God, I need to count my blessings. I need to recognize I've been a recipient of some general kindness from God. I also really need to look for what I'm not seeing. And the third thing is, I I need to embrace the risk that comes with kindness. And David does this with Mephibosheth. Uh, Loving an enemy is risky. Which, by the way, this is the very thing that sets Christianity apart from any other world religion. Especially in terms of ethics and morality, if you were to compare the, uh, if you went through a class that does comparative religious studies, you're going to see there's different worldviews, but when when it comes to the ethics and the morality, they're all kind of pretty much the same. You know, take care of the poor. The motivations might be different. Take care of the poor. Help people. You know, don't lie. Don't cheat. Don't steal. Don't kill. Don't murder. You know, it's all basically 90 percent basically the same. You know what you're never going to find? You're never going to find a leader or a founder of any other world religion that comes even remotely close to saying what Jesus says when he says, love your enemies. You don't read that anywhere, anywhere else. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. That's nowhere else. That's uniquely Jesus. You know why that's uniquely Jesus? Because that is uniquely rooted in the doctrine of our salvation in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were His enemies, He came for us. While we were His enemies, He still loved us. No other religion teaches what Jesus teaches because nothing else has all of that rooted in the nature of God and His intercession for you and for me as our great high Priest. It's risky to love your enemies. It, it really is. I mean, for, for David to do what he did with Mephibosheth, that, that must be uh, very, very odd. A lot of people looking at him sort of strange, empowering this other person with wealth, prosperity, land, then inviting him to the table. I mean, there's a certain amount of risk there. But that's what separates the men from the boys, the women from the girls, so to speak. The ability to have the courage and the bravery to embrace fully, the fierceness of the kindness of Christ, the fierceness that is loving, the fierceness that would embrace an enemy knowing that they very well could stab you in the back while you're giving them an embrace. There's a risk involved. And and therein is is the, the difficulty. But if we don't allow people... To get close to us, how do they draw close to God? David understood. If he didn't make himself approachable to Mephibosheth, David would not communicate the approachability of God. You see this when Jesus sends out the disciples. Jesus understood that we have to make ourselves receivable to other people, and that involves kindness. People are not always going to receive you, but just because people don't always receive you doesn't mean that you shouldn't do your best, and I shouldn't do my best to make ourselves receivable. That's why Jesus says, he who receives you receives me, and he who receives me receives the one who sent me. We have to do our best to make ourselves receivable, and that involves the the, the kindness. Now, Jesus wasn't under any impression that just because we make ourselves kind and receivable that, that always the enemies are going to respond the way that we want them to respond. Jesus is very straightforward later on when he says, he who rejects you rejects me, and the one who rejects... Me rejects the one who sent me. There's going to be rejection. There's going to be difficulty. And that's why we always want to put up the guard and we want to have the hard exterior. We know that there's this core conviction in relationship with God that is unchanging, but we want that solid core to extend all the way to the exterior so that people don't hurt us. And what the Bible teaches is that we don't wear some suit of armor to keep people at a distance. We, we wear the, I don't know, soft wool of kindness, We make ourselves as approachable as possible while not yielding the kingship of Jesus Christ over our lives and his desire to rule and to reign supreme over all areas of life. Jesus knew, though, even if we make ourselves kind and make ourselves approachable, that there's going to be the occasion where people are going to reject you because you're living under the kingship of Christ and they want nothing to do with his kingship and rule. But Jesus was comfortable with us sometimes being rejected, and that's why he says, I'm sending you out like sheep you just covered with wool. That's it. I'm sending you out like sheep amongst wolves. And in Matthew chapter 10, when he's sending them out, he says, people are going to hate you. They're going to they're despise you. They'll reject you. They'll malign you. They'll persecute you. In fact, you'll even get killed. And Jesus is okay with this. It's not, not well, Is he okay with that? Well, he just knows that comes with the territory. Because what's the alternative to showing the kindness of Christ to people? Here's the alternative. The alternative is hiding the kindness of God. And that's a worse alternative. So if I'm going to really reveal the next level kindness of God, I need to recognize His kindness to my own life, I need to look beyond the surface of things, and I need to embrace the risk and the difficulties that come with being kind like Jesus, because if that's how they responded to his kindness, that's how he's going, that's how the world's going to respond to those who follow him. If they treated the shepherd that way, that's how they're going to treat the sheep. But there's a fourth thing, and this is the most important of all. This is where David says this, this is the lodestone of his kindness. I, if I'm going to show the next level of kindness of God, I have to remember and recognize the next level kindness, the specific kindness that has been displayed to me in my Savior. You see this sort of thing happening with David. Look at this. Verse 1. David asked, Is there anyone still left of the house of Saul to whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake? For Jonathan's sake. How does David reach across the political aisle? How does he embrace this enemy? How does he do this? Why did David do what he did? David gives us the reason. Not that these other reasons don't have validity. They do. But here's the lodestone issue. He says in verse 7, he explains this to Mephibosheth. I will surely show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. If we're going to display an an incredible kindness, a next level kindness, we need to have received an incredible specific kindness. And David has received that from Jonathan. Let me give you the backstory because it's really helpful. Here's what went on between Jonathan and David. Years and years and years ago, God had sent this prophet, Samuel, to anoint David to be the next king over Israel. The next king after Saul. Saul is angry about this and he wants to kill David. You know why? Because Saul has a son, Saul has Jonathan. And every dad wants their son to follow in their footsteps, especially if it's a king who has a prince. He he didn't want David to to ascend to the the throne. He wanted Jonathan to ascend to the throne, and so he wants to take David out. But, you know, if anybody had any incentive to banish David or kill David, it would have to be Jonathan. Because when Saul's gone, well, I mean, you know, he's gone. But Jonathan's still going to be around, and he won't be on the throne because somebody else is ascending to the throne. And if you're in Jonathan's shoes, you might be thinking, I deserve to be there by all human rights because I'm the son of Saul. I'm the next in line. Somebody's cutting in front of me. But Jonathan doesn't feel that way. He doesn't try to banish David. He doesn't try to kill David. As a matter of fact, he becomes friends with David. He recognizes that God has a plan for David's life, and the plan for David's life is to exalt David to the highest place in the land, to seat him on the throne, even at the expense of Jonathan. But he recognizes that's God's plan. And he also just loves David. In chapter 18 and 19 and 20 of 1 Samuel, you see this covenant of friendship and 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 there's this moment where Jonathan promises he's going to protect David from the wrath of his father he's going to remain completely loyal to his father but he's going to protect David from the wrath of his father and there's this moment where he takes off his robe and he lays down his sword as a symbolic expression of a radical kindness to David that I'm not going to get into your way in fact I am descending that you would ascend I'm giving up my throne so that you will be the one who can who can reign. Here's the point. David has a friend. David has a friend who puts himself in harm's way so that David will be taken out of harm's way. David has a friend who gives up the throne so that David can get the throne. And as the story goes, eventually because well because Jonathan is loyal to his dad and also protecting David, he gets put in this situation where eventually he's in a no-win situation, in a no-win battle, where he, along with his dad and two brothers, dies on Mount Gilboa. Eventually, in a certain respect, because he befriends David, Jonathan dies. David has a friend like that. And because he has a friend like that who's given him that specific kindness, he's able to turn around and do for Mephibosheth what he does because he says, it's for Jonathan's sake that I'm doing this. I've been shown a special kindness so I can show a radical kindness to you. And in case you're not drawing all the lines here, let me help you draw the connections. Do you have a friend like Jonathan? There's one nodding head in the back and I don't think it's asleep. Okay. Okay. Do you have a friend like Jonathan? Yes. Okay, we know what the Bible teaches. That there was actually somebody already reigning on the throne. And he gave up a throne, not that was yet to come, but one that he already had. And he stepped down from the throne so that we could be exalted on high. And he remained completely loyal to his father. Never sinned. Lived the life we should have lived. But then he died the death that we should have died. And he gave up his position And He protected us from the holy wrath of God that we deserved. Because He did live the life we should have lived, but then He died the death in our place that we should have died. He was a friend to us and loyal to the Father. He loved us like a brother. And He still does. That's the friend that we have. And He didn't just die on Mount Gilboa because of unfortunate circumstances. He went to Mount Calvary intentionally knowing he wasn't risking his life, but giving his life for you and for me. We have a friend like no other. And that's why we display the next level kindness that we do. Because we've been shown a next level kindness, a kindness that's like no other kindness, a kindness that even when we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's the kindness that we've received. And if you're not living in that kindness, of course you're not going to display that kindness. Because if you're not living in that kindness, you don't, All you have is, well, love them anyway, but you can't just love them anyway unless you have been loved anyway. It's difficult to love an enemy. But when we remember how we've been loved, it doesn't just help. It's the game changer literally less than two weeks ago as I was thinking through Love is Kind and this passage and just beginning to mine some of the riches of it. I was in Starbucks like is my custom and I was reading and thinking and I've got the headphones on because I'm you know, i just tuned in. Well, I, I did notice out of the corner of my eye that somebody came in and sat down at a table right across from me, but I didn't pay any attention. It was about 10, 15 minutes past and then I look up or look out of the corner of my eye and I recognize... This is somebody I haven't seen in over two years. And they're an enemy. I won't tell you all the details, but they were were really mean to me. And I know that person had to have intentionally ignored me because they came in and they were looking around. And I'm just thinking, maybe I should just intentionally ignore them. And then, of course, I'm thinking about this passage. And so, you know what I have to do? This is the same thing you have to do. You have to take the gospel and screw it down a little deeper and a little more tightly until eventually His specific, sacrificial, bold love overwhelms you so that it becomes really unthinkable to not display His kindness. There's more pain, there should be more pain for you in hiding His kindness than in displaying it even to an enemy. Take the kindness of the Gospel. Screw it down a little bit more deeply. Allow it to change you. And then in those moments when you do display the kindness, you recognize completely, I'm only doing this because of what's been done to me. I don't have kindness of my own. Any kindness that comes through me, it's coming through me from Him. And that's exactly what God wants to see happening. His kindness being made known in a powerful way because when that's out there, people at least have a chance to respond. People don't always say yes to the kindness of God, but if the kindness of God is not on display, they absolutely will never Say yes to God. Let's bow for word of prayer. Father, we just say thank you so much for your kindness. You've been good to us in so many ways. and With a general kindness, you've been good to us and you've given grace upon grace upon grace to us. The good things that we have, they, most of them came by virtue of the talents and gifts that you gave us, the station of our birth, the nation in which we find ourselves. For us to even think that we have earned what we have earned is to somehow forget that you gave us the opportunities and the situations and the the blessings. You've been good to us. And we know because oftentimes we will look at our own lives and you think, you don't know what I'm going through. Well, what's true for us is true for everyone else we meet. There's so much more going on beneath the surface than at first meets the eye. Help us to look for what we're not seeing. Help us like those original disciples whom you sent out. Help us to embrace the reality that there is risk involved in loving our enemies. Of course, on occasion, we will be rejected and maligned and persecuted. And at least on a global scale, we see this happening a lot. Killed. Of course, that's going to happen on occasion when we love our enemies. Help us to be realistic about that and press forward nonetheless. And to press because we recognize that a kindness has been shown to us unlike any other kindness. That one from above this world, beyond this world, came to this world and loved this world in a way that the world needed to be loved. Not just the world out there. Someone from beyond me came and loved me in a way that I needed. In a way that set me free and changed my life. Help us to remember that kindness and where that kindness isn't flowing appropriately, may we dig all the more deeply into the gospel and into your grace and may it change us in the way in which we live our lives that the world would see you the ultimate friend. We pray all of this in Christ's holy name. Amen.